There's a, there's a certain kind of person known as a Debbie Downer. You all know what I'm talking about? A person who can take a positive thing and somehow twist it into something negative. So, so for example, a young couple welcomes their first child into the world. And somebody says, well, I hope you enjoyed your sleep while you had it. You know. Or maybe somebody, <laughs> amen, or maybe somebody makes a comment on the weather. Man, it's such a beautiful day outside. And then somebody comes in and you know, starts talking about all the mosquitoes or all the pollen or, hey, we haven't gotten enough rain or we got too much rain. Right? And they just can't enjoy the beauty of the moment. Or how about this one? You know, we, if you're a Mississippi State fan or an Ole Miss fan or a Southern Miss, uh, football starts next Saturday, y'all. Hope springs eternal. Might be pretty decent this year. But then there's always that Alabama fan who comes in and says, well, just wait until you play the Tide. And y'all, that's true. But it still hurts, right? It's still painful to think about. Um, well, here's the question. If you, do you think Debbie Downers go back like, I mean, how far in history do we have evidence of these kind of people? Did they exist in the time of Jesus? You know, it's interesting, as we've walked through the Gospel of John, we see Debbie Downers almost on every page in every chapter. John calls them the religious leaders, or the scribes and the Pharisees, because these were people who were constantly trying to put Jesus down and reject him at every turn. Any good thing Jesus said, there was always an argument from them. Any good thing Jesus did they would try to find a way to make it a problem. We saw it on display back in chapter 5. Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed, and it became a big fuss among the religious leaders. And then here again in John chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man born blind. We saw that last week. And rather than celebrating the great work of God right in front of them, the religious leaders condemn it. They totally try to spoil the good work of Jesus. And so we're going to look at the rest of the story. We're going to look at the majority of chapter 9 now after the miracle has taken place. And y'all, what I want us to see today, this is, this is kind of like a test case where hopefully we have an application for ourselves as we read it. We've got two very different kinds of people or very different outcomes in this story that on one hand, we have a person whose eyes have been opened to see Jesus. And then on the other hand, we have a group of people who can see just fine. And yet they are totally blind to the truth and grace of God. So John is not just reporting history for us here. He's hopefully holding up a mirror that we might see ourselves in one way or another. That we might learn about our own hearts today. And so just, just to catch us up to speed, the miracle which takes place in the first seven verses of the chapter, Jesus encounters a man who was born blind. He'd spent his whole life in the dark. The disciples are under the assumption that there must be some sin involved that this man is being punished for. This is judgment. That's why he's blind. And Jesus says, no, this is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus spits on the ground, makes a little mud, applies it to the man's eyes, and tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man goes and rinses his eyes, and his blindness is gone. He can now see. Well, that's just the beginning of the story. Look with me at verse 8 in the aftermath. 
Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. Speaking of Jesus, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Now let's stop here for just a moment to make note of this. There's a lot of confusion and discussion, even division, over this miracle. But the primary concern of the religious leaders is what? It's not the miracle. It's the fact that the miracle took place on a certain day, the Sabbath day. The day sanctioned by God to be a day of rest and worship, a day when no work was to be done. This was the same problem from John chapter 5, the healing of the paralyzed man. And so the the Pharisees had this very meticulous list, all the things that they determined that should not be done on the Sabbath day. And in their minds, even the miraculous work of healing was an affront to God. It was a sin if it was done on a Saturday. And so some of the Pharisees have already come to this conclusion. Jesus cannot possibly have come from God because He's breaking the Sabbath. That alone disqualifies Him regardless of what He's able to do, even if he did perform the miracle, he's condemned because it's the Sabbath. But then there are some Pharisees that keep wondering, how how could a man who didn't come from God do something that only God could do? How is it possible unless God is with him? And so there's division here, and in an effort to solve the problem, they throw together a quick trial and begin to call witnesses. You see this in verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So the man's parents are brought in and they give the minimum amount of testimony possible. 
they refuse to speculate about Jesus. And why not? Well, John tells us the religious leaders had already decreed at this point, if anyone confesses Jesus, if anyone follows that man, then he will be excommunicated from the synagogue, put out, cast out, banned from the place of worship. Now, y'all, that may not strike us, but we really don't have an equivalent to that kind of threat. It's hard for you and me to understand just how serious that threat was. To be put out of the synagogue for a Jew during this time would have been a fate maybe worse than death because the synagogue was the center of worship and therefore it was the center of everything. All of Jewish life and community revolved around the synagogue and the worship of God's people. And so if you were expelled from that place, you became an outcast in every way. Y'all, if that were to happen in the modern church, well, throw a rock far enough, you'll hit another one. Go to that church, right? And we might not think it's a big deal. Our feelings are hurt, but I can go find another church. There was one synagogue in every city, in every town. You couldn't go find another one. And even if you tried to move communities, that dark cloud would hover over you and follow behind you. This, the, the threat here is this. You will lose everything. Your, statuses, your status, your privileges, your reputation, your esteem. And effectively, you're going to lose your relationship with God. That's how they assumed it to be. If I'm cast out from the worship of God's people, then I'm nothing. Not even God loves me anymore. That's the stigma here. And so, y'all, I, I, just, I, want to, I want to camp out on this for just a minute. Now, forgive me, humor me a little rabbit trail, okay? When the religious leaders make this kind of threat, what are they communicating to the people? We see that the, the Jews here, the, and, and when John uses the word the Jews, he's speaking of the leaders. These are people who had taken all of the beauty and glory and mercy and privilege of worship and perverted it down into a system of law governed by fear to communicate this decree to the people is the leader's way of saying to the people, listen, you're only here because we allow you to be. You're only part of the community of worship because we say so. And if you don't play by the rules we set, we can ruin you. We'll ruin your life. I mean, it sounds like the mafia a little bit, right? These leaders were corrupting the true worship of God by establishing their own man-made system of fear and intimidation. Now, here's a question for us. Is it possible that the church can actually become like that too? Can the Christian church become like the Pharisees here? You know, it's very easy, easier than we might think, even though it might happen more subtly, even if we do it without realizing it. So just, just if you want to close your eyes and try to imagine this for a minute, try to imagine a church where questions and disagreements are just not allowed. You're not allowed to go there. You're not allowed to question anything. A church where you wouldn't dare be honest about yourself, about your life, your struggles, your sins, because you know that you'll be maligned and brushed aside if you do. You know that you'll have a stigma if you dare to confess that sin in the church. The church where as long as you're buttoned up and you look and act the part, you belong, but the minute you don't, you're going to be squeezed out the back door. It's actually not that hard to imagine. 
is it? And y'all, it should never be said of the church that we would be that way, that we would be the kind of place where we bully people into religious conformity. Because we are a people of grace. Y'all, the defining mark of the church is not our intellect. It's not that we share all sorts of social things in common. There's nothing else about us that would unite us together apart from the grace of God. It's the only reason we're even here to begin with. It's because we're a people of grace. And so I want to say this out loud, what I hope, I hope we all feel when we're part of Harvest Church. And y'all, I'll be the first to admit that Harvest Church fumbles and fails in many ways, but we can't fail at this. We can't. And so I'm just going to say it out loud and project what I hope is true and will become truer of us. Y'all, we, you, I, we do not belong in this church because we have set or maintained a certain personal standard. You don't belong here because you've earned your way in and neither do I. That's not how we esteem each other. That we're all climbing a spiritual ladder, some higher, some lower. But we're all aiming for some measure of perfection and religious success. Because in that case, if that were true, when you come into church, you better put your helmet and shoulder pads on because you're about to get bludgeoned and you know it. Because we govern each other by law, by intimidation. You better measure up, right? May it never be said of Harvest Church or of any church that names the name of Jesus Christ. That we would be the kind of place where a person cannot confess sin, cannot feel safe, cannot be welcomed in because they haven't reached the standard that we hold each other to. Y'all, in Romans chapter 15, there's this wonderful little command. It's not little, it's short. In Romans 15, the Apostle Paul commands the church. He says, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. Y'all, you know what? You, you understand the, the beauty of that command is that in light of what Jesus has done for us, not just forgiving our sins, but He's welcomed us into His own heart. He's brought us into the heart of God. The safest place a human being can be. The most wonderful place. Paul says, welcome one another in the same way. Welcome each other into your own hearts. That's how the church ought to be. By His grace, He's welcomed us. By the same grace, we do the same for each other. And y'all, we all get to contribute to that culture in a church. It's my job, yes. And I feel the weight of that. But it's yours too. It's our job together. We get to contribute to a place where people are relieved to be here. They are welcomed into the heart of Christ and never afraid of being cast aside or cast out. I just needed to say that. Thank you for the rabbit trail. All right? We can't be like the Pharisees. Play by our rules and you're okay. You're safe. But only then. That's not the church. All right, look at verse 24 now as we move forward. A second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, 
that though I was blind, now I see. You know, uh, when, when the Pharisees say to the man, give glory to God, that's not a positive command. What they're saying is, before God, you better own up and tell the truth. It's the same thing Joshua said to Achan back in the Old Testament after Achan had stolen goods that God forbid. Joshua said, give glory to God. Achan, you're about to be punished. That's the idea here. They're trying to intimidate this man into a false confession. But now we start to see something amazing in this story. This man is not intimidated in the same way that his parents were. He sticks to his story. And y'all, every time we sing Amazing Grace, we share and sing in this man's testimony. Did you see it? One thing I know, he says, I was blind, but now I see. So, verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. That you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. Um, where does this guy get the courage on display here? There, there has to be something about being touched by the healing hands of Almighty God that changes a person's perspective from the time he woke up that morning until now when he stands before the most powerful council in the world. This man is not afraid of the Pharisees and their threats. He's undeterred by their intimidation. In fact, he gets downright snarky with these people. And all the while, see, these people, they think they've got the higher ground. And they say it. We're the disciples of Moses. That is to say, we're the ones who really know the truth. We're really the ones in charge here. Well, to which the man replies, well, if you're so smart, why can't you see what's right in front of your eyes? No one's ever healed a person born blind. And y'all, that's true. I always wondered, is that, really, is that right? Is this man speaking out of ignorance here? Is he just caught up in the moment? To my knowledge, nowhere in the Bible is a person who was born blind healed of their blindness. He's right. This has never happened before. And so this man, Jesus, must have come from God. There's no other explanation. That's the man's confession, his testimony. And the leaders have nothing else to say at this point but just to hurl insults. You were born entirely in your sins. See, they're reflecting the same things that the disciples thought at the beginning of the chapter. Who sinned that this man is born blind? And see, that's the belief they feel too, except they're not, they feel no pity, no compassion, no love for this man. They simply want him gone. You are the sinner here. And you're going to try to teach us? That's all they've got left. 
except for their one big threat. Remember their one thing, the one way we can really ruin you? They cast him out. They put him out. He has confessed Jesus, and therefore, he's out. Now, you've probably noticed this. In all of this narrative, I mean, we're looking at like 30-some-odd verses today. Jesus is the topic of conversation in every verse. And yet, Jesus isn't there. He doesn't show up in the narrative. The miracle's been performed back in verse 6 or 7. And now, where's Jesus? Well, here he comes back around at the end. The man's been put out of the synagogue, right? Has he been ruined, as the Pharisee had hoped? Look at verse 35. Jesus heard they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Oh, there's a a, a wonderful little insight there. What Jesus says to this man, you have seen him. An hour ago, the man could see nothing. And for his entire life, he could see nothing and no one. And now he sees the Son of Man, the Savior sent from God. You see him, Jesus says. In spite of the Pharisees' best efforts to ruin this man, to make him an outcast, y'all, he is light as a feather. I mean, I don't know how this day could get any better for him. That first he receives his sight, a blind man, born blind, receiving his sight. But now here he is, in the latter part of the chapter, a sinner receiving salvation. And y'all, the first miracle gets all the publicity, but it's the second miracle that's far greater. That's far greater. This man comes to faith in Jesus. He believes in Him and he worships Him. We will meet Him in heaven. Not just a a physical ailment being cured, but His sin being forgiven and life granted by Jesus Himself. Now, how is Jesus going to tie all this together? You know, sometimes, y'all, Jesus makes obscure statements. This is one of those times. But what Jesus is doing now, he's taking the whole of this this account, beginning in verse 1, the miracle itself, the blindness healed, and the response of the Pharisees, and he's going to give us a little, almost like a little parable here to help us understand what's happening at the deeper level. And so Jesus says, look at verse 39, in response to this man's belief and worship, Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Uh, Jesus is describing the outcome of his ministry here. Not so much the purpose, but the outcome or the effect of his ministry. And I've heard a pastor say it like this, that, that because of Jesus, we almost always see people moving in one direction or the other, opposite directions, never neutral never staying in the same place when it comes to Jesus, but moving in one direction or the other. And this story of physical healing is an illustration of that, of one direction or the other, okay? And so think about it. We've got, on one side, we've got this helpless, hopeless, incurably blind man who receives sight and sees Jesus. 
And at the same time, in the other direction, we've got the healthy, educated, powerful, self-righteous people sinking into blindness. Deeper and deeper into darkness. And it may help us to to think about some some other things Jesus has told us. Y'all, you don't need to turn there, but back in Luke 15, Jesus gave three of his most famous parables that all carried the same message. There was a lost sheep, then there was a lost coin, and then finally a lost son. But in each of those examples or stories, Jesus tells us the point um, for our own understanding. He says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, we know, and, and the Scripture confirms, there's no such thing as a righteous person who needs no repentance, as if such a person exists. Everybody is a sinner in need of repentance, in need of salvation. But there are some who don't see it, who don't feel it, who don't believe it about themselves. And so heaven doesn't celebrate people who think they are righteous of their own, or on their own. But there's a great party in the presence of God and in the heart of God over the one who repents. And so y'all think about how this story is, is illustrating the point. In this case, the blind man in John 9, the blind man is the one. His physical blindness is hopefully helping us to see a deeper problem that we all face, that Jesus is showing us here at the end, that every person, every person is blinded to the glory of God, blinded to the light of God's righteousness and in need of new eyes to see. And that God, because He is gracious, shines the light of Jesus Christ into our hearts. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There are those who are blind that need to see in a way that only God can perform. But there are also those, again, the other direction, there are those who refuse the light because they feel no need to repent. These are people who see just fine in their own estimation. And so when Jesus Christ brings the light of His grace into the world, into their very presence, they see no consequence at all. They have no desire for what He is, who He is, or what He offers, because they think they've already got all the light they need. They see just fine. And y'all, this was such a problem for Jesus as He encountered His own kinsmen. These are the Jews. These are people who would have had the light of God's revelation through the Old Testament, the light of God's miracles, the light of God's prophets. They had so much light, seemingly, that it made the darkness all the more obvious when they encountered Christ. And we see that in verse 40. This is how it ends. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to Jesus, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. I think what Jesus is communicating is this. If you knew your spiritual blindness, your sin and your helplessness, if you knew your great need, then you would receive me. You would receive Jesus and trust in His saving grace. But because you are self 
righteous, you will not receive Him. And so your sin remains. You are still in your sin. You remain in the dark. And y'all, this, is, this has been the recurring theme throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus has made it clear at every turn, the people who think they know, don't know. The people who are sure that they are God's gift to the world because they know the Bible and they know and keep all the rules and rituals and they know who's really in and who's out and they are responsible for keeping the gate and they certainly know everything there is to know about Jesus. That He's a sinner. He's a Samaritan. He has a demon. He's nobody. They're just sure they know about Him too. And in reality, Jesus says, you don't know God. And therefore, the effect of Jesus' ministry as the Son of God, rather than these people being illumined and enlightened, they become darkened, willfully ignorant of His saving purpose. Their pride in thinking they can see has actually kept them blind to what's right in front of them. God's Son, our Savior, come into the world. And y'all, this is not a problem that's unique to them. And as we close, I, I want to offer this as, a, as an encouragement. It's a challenge. I hope it's a challenge for you and for me. Nobody likes to admit weakness and ignorance and sin and need. Nobody likes to admit that, that we are helpless in our sin. I don't. And so it's in the heart of every person, everybody, it's in my heart to think that by my wisdom, my strength, my effort, my intellect, whatever it may be, my spirituality, I can make myself acceptable to God. Sure, I'm a sinner. Sure, I'm needy. Yeah, but I can overcome it given enough time and energy and effort. I can do it. I must do it. What other option is there? But at this point, y'all, the, the wonderfully backward, counterintuitive message of the gospel comes to us. Y'all, uh, I've heard pastors say this. I say this often. The gospel is translated good news, not good advice. Good advice would be, let's hit each other over the head for being bad and encourage each other to go do better. See you next week. Good news is the declaration of something that's been done for us. And the good news is this, that those who know they are blind, are given new eyes to see. Those who are hopelessly lost are the ones who are found and brought home by Jesus. Those who have nothing to show for themselves, those who are poor in spirit, are the ones given the riches of God's grace as a free gift. Not by earning, but by receiving. That's the Gospel. And that is, He is, Jesus is a good gift of God that we receive by faith, not by any good thing we do. And so y'all, the, the caution here from John 9, something we ought to take very seriously. None of us see ourselves as Pharisees. I can say that safely. We know they're the bad guys. And so I'm not one of them, right? And yet the sneakiness of pride is this. The more prideful you become in your own heart, the blinder you become to God. The more prideful you become, the blinder you become. 
the more self-righteous I am, the more I look to myself for salvation, the less I see of God and His truth and His grace. The more we say that we see, the less we actually see. Because the good news is that Jesus did not come to round up all the good religious people and pat us on the back and welcome us into heaven. No, Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's you and me. He came to open the eyes of the blind, of those living in darkness, so that we might walk in the light of His life. And so you didn't earn your way in here, and neither did I. And you will not maintain your good standing here by having a really good week this week, and otherwise don't even bother showing up. What kind of, what kind of gospel, what kind of good news would that be? Now, we are here as people who take no pride in ourselves. And therefore, we don't hold each other to that standard. We are the people who sing with joy and without shame. I once was lost, but now am found. T'was blind, but now I see. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for us that we would be captured by what we've read in Your Word. That our hearts would be, would be overwhelmed by the new way of Jesus Christ. Not the old way of the letter. The old way of human religion governed by law and intimidation and fear. Keep the rules or you're out. And yet we see in this this story, Jesus, after the man was put out, Jesus comes and finds him on the outside and reveals his grace to him. Father, thank you that that's our story too. When we were outside of the light, living in the dark, separated from you without hope in the world, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to seek us and save us. Father, I pray for us that we would be just enthralled with this message of grace, overjoyed, To know, Lord, that, that we that in spite of everything we've done and everything we've been and everywhere we've been and the list, Lord, of our sins so long we can't keep count. Loved the world and gave your Son that we might not perish that we might no longer live in darkness, but know the light of life. Father, where we are, where we're prone to put so much confidence and burden and weight on ourselves, thinking we, we must uphold all the right standards. That's what gets us in. or the craziness of thinking that we even could. 
Father, show us Jesus. Point us to Jesus. And let His light shine in our hearts. That everything we are is grace. Everything we are is a gift that you have delighted to give. Thank you, Father. If we see Him, it's because you have so graciously opened our eyes to see Him. And we owe everything to you. And so may it be that we would worship you as you deserve, that we would sing amazing grace with all our hearts. In the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.